This is a podcast from Tbilisi International Christian Fellowship, a gathering of many nations who are one in Christ. This sermon is from our series on 1 Samuel called Waiting for the Kingdom. And we're going to read 1 Samuel chapter, five, chapter 25 today. And it is rather a longish chapter. So I'm going to try to make my message a little shorter to compensate. And that is a good deal because your infallibility quotient percentage is going up. And we do want to hear what God has to say to us today through this Old Testament story in 1 Samuel chapter 25. Let's listen to the word of God together. Now Samuel died, and all Israel assembled and mourned for him, and they buried him at his home in Ramah. Then David moved down into the desert of Paran. A certain man in Maon who had property there at Carmel was very wealthy. He had a thousand goats and three thousand sheep which he was shearing in Carmel. His name was Nabal, and his wife's name was Abigail. She was an intelligent and beautiful woman, but her husband was surly and mean in his dealings. He was a Calebite. While David was in the wilderness, he heard that Nabal was shearing sheep. So he sent ten young men and said to them, Go up to Nabal at Carmel and greet him in my name. Say to him, Long life to you, good health to you and your household, and good health to all that is yours. Now I hear that it is sheep shearing time. When your shepherds were with us, we did not mistreat them, and the whole time they were at Carmel, nothing of theirs was missing. Ask your own servants, and they will tell you. Therefore, be favorable toward my men, since we come at a festive time. Please give your servants and your son David whatever you can find for them. When David's men arrived, they gave Nabal this message in David's name. Then they waited. Nabal answered David's servants, Who is this David? Who is this son of Jesse? Many servants are breaking away from their masters these days. Why should I take my bread and water and the meat that I have slaughtered for my shearers and give it to men coming from who knows where? David's men turned around and went back. When they arrived, they reported every word. David said to his men, each of you strap on your sword. So they did, and David strapped his on as well. About 400 men went up with David, while 200 stayed with the supplies. One of the servants told Abigail, Nabal's wife, David sent messengers from the wilderness to give our master his greeting, but he hurled insults at them. Yet these men were very good to us. They did not mistreat us, and the whole time we were out in the fields near them, nothing was missing. Night and day, they were a wall around us the whole time we were herding our sheep near them. Now think it over and see what you can do, because disaster is hanging over our master and his household. He's such a wicked man that no one can talk to him. Abigail acted quickly. She took 200 loaves of bread, two skins of wine, five dressed sheep, five seahs of roasted grain, 100 cakes of raisins, and 200 cakes of pressed figs, and loaded them on donkeys. Then she told her servants, go on ahead, I'll follow you. But she did not tell her husband, Nabal. As she came riding her donkey into a mountain ravine, there were David and his men descending toward her, and she met them. David had just said, it's been useless. All my watching over this fellow's property in the wilderness so that nothing of his was missing. He has paid me back evil for good. May God deal with David, be it ever so severely, if by morning I leave alive one male of all who belong to him. 
When Abigail saw David, she quickly got off her donkey and bowed down before David with her face to the ground. She fell at his feet and said, Pardon your servant, my lord, and let me speak to you. Hear what your servant has to say. Please pay no attention, my lord, to that wicked man Nabal. He's just like his name. His name means fool, and folly goes with him. And as for me, your servant, I I did not see the men my lord sent. And now, my Lord, as surely as the Lord your God lives and as you live, since the Lord has kept you from bloodshed and from avenging yourself with your own hands, may your enemies and all who are intent on harming my Lord be like Nabal. And let this gift which your servant has brought to my Lord be given to the men who follow you. Please forgive your servant's presumption. The Lord will certainly make a lasting dynasty for my Lord because you fight the Lord's battles and no wrongdoing will be found in you as long as you live. Even though someone is pursuing you to take your life, the life of my Lord will be bound securely in the bundle of the living by the Lord your God. But the lives of your enemies he will hurl away as from the pocket of a sling. When the Lord has fulfilled for my Lord every good thing he promised concerning him and has appointed him ruler over Israel, my Lord will not have on his conscience the staggering burden of needless bloodshed or of having avenged himself. And when the Lord your God has brought my Lord success, remember your servant. David said to Abigail, Praise be to the Lord, the God of Israel, who has sent you today to meet me. May you be blessed for your good judgment and for keeping me from bloodshed this day and from avenging myself with my own hands. Otherwise, as surely as the Lord, the God of Israel, lives, who has kept me from harming you, if you had not come quickly to meet me, not one male belonging to Nabal would have been left alive by daybreak. Then David accepted from her hand what she had brought him and said, Go home in peace. I have heard your words and granted your request. When Abigail went to Nabal, he was in the house holding a banquet like that of a king. He was in high spirits and very drunk. So she told him nothing at all until daybreak. Then in the morning when Nabal was sober, his wife told him all these things and his heart failed him and he became like a stone. About 10 days later, the Lord struck Nabal and he died. When David heard that Nabal was dead, he said, praise be to the Lord who has upheld my cause against Nabal for treating me with contempt. He has kept his servant from doing wrong and has brought Nabal's wrongdoing down on his own head. Then David sent word to Abigail, asking her to become his wife. His servants went to Carmel and said to Abigail, David has sent us to you to take you to become his wife. She bowed down with her face to the ground and said, I am your servant and I'm ready to serve you and wash the feet of my Lord's servants. Abigail quickly got on a donkey and attended by her five female servants went with David's messengers and became his wife. David had also married Ahinoam of Jezreel, and they were both his wives. But, but Saul had given his daughter Michael, David's wife, to Paltiel, son of Laish, who was from Galim. This is the word of the Lord. And it's a story, in essence, of a man too stupid to listen to his own wife and died in consequence. And therefore, I think some of you will be enjoying this message much more than others. And fortunately for me, Michelle is not here, so I can relax and work this out on my own. This is a story that begins, in fact, with the death of the prophet Samuel. Samuel had served God long and faithfully. He had patiently wrestled with Saul. And finally, because of Saul's disobedience and unwillingness to listen to God, 
Samuel had pronounced judgment on Saul and anointed David himself. And now after a long retirement, we haven't heard from Samuel since chapter 16, he dies. He doesn't want a big fuss made. He insists that he's buried under the floor of his own house. But nevertheless, the whole nation comes out to mourn him. And Saul, I'm sure, was there making the official speech. But one man is absent, David. David is on the run. And although peace seems to have been made between David and Saul after David spared Saul's life in the cave, David is not ready to trust himself to the fickle hands of the king. And so David is out in the wilderness, and there he encounters a big man, Nabal. Nabal, the first thing we learn about this man is not who he is or what his character is or even his name. It's what he owns. This is a man defined by his possessions, his money, his sheep, and his goats. That, in his own mind, is what his net worth consists of. Nabal is introduced by his possessions, but his wife is introduced by her character. She's not only beautiful, she is intelligent, she's wise, she's discerning. She has the gift that not every woman has, the double gift of having both good looks and good sense. And how on earth she ended up with this guy is the big question. Because Nabal is surly and mean. He is not a nice character. This guy is a big jerk, to be honest. And he's rich enough and powerful enough in his rural community that he can afford to be a jerk without any consequence. He's by far the biggest man around. And the joke in this chapter is that his name, Nabal, which probably means something like archer or chosen from God, a very nice name that his mother and father gave him, also happens to sound almost exactly like the Hebrew word for fool, a name he was probably first called by the other children in elementary school, but ones I imagine his servants called him, not to his face, because that would never do, but behind his back in complete irritation and frustration of having to deal with the guy whose head was basically solid Nabal is the fool. And Nabal also sounds like the Hebrew words for wineskin and for corpse, which is what this man will end up as at the end of the chapter. Nabal is a moron. That is the name everyone calls him, including his wife. It's not that he's deficient in basic intelligence. He was a clever man in his own way. He worked hard. He'd raised up these huge flocks. He was running this ranch. But, you know, stupidity is an equal opportunity employer. There are very successful people who are quite stupid at life. Very well-educated people with advanced degrees who are quite stupid at life. And people with a lot of money and a lot of possessions who are very, very foolish when it comes to making wise life decisions. Nabal is a Calebite. And Caleb, along with Joshua, is one of the two heroic spies, you remember, who had faith to enter the land. His ancestor was a great man, but not all heroes have worthy descendants. And Nabal did not deserve the name of his ancestor. 
One detail that is interesting is that Caleb was the man who founded the town of Bethlehem, David's hometown. So it seems like David and Nabal are distant relations. They belong to the same clan. Nabal has a huge flock, a thousand goats and three thousand sheep, and it's shearing time. This would have been a huge endeavor. There's no electric clippers to run through these animals. They've got to be snipped one by one, an exhausting endeavor that he would have overseen personally. But at the end of it, there's going to be a huge feast to celebrate. Just like at the end of the the grape harvest, there's a big supra, and the same thing is being planned for Nabal and his men. Well, David's been hanging out nearby. David is a fugitive, but he's a fugitive with a small personal army. 600 hungry, restless men. And so he sent a delegation to very politely and respectfully ask for a share in the feast. And he had good reason to make this request because him and his men at great uh, cost themselves, great sweat, had protected Nabal's shepherds and their sheep. They'd been a wall around them. And um, there would, be, would have been no petty sheep rustler, no bandit in the area who would have wanted to, to tackle with what were essentially the hell's angels that David is running here. He's got a party, a, a, a private army of ruffians, and he's protected Nabal's flock perfectly. Not a single sheep has been lost out of a flock of 4,000 a 0% attrition rate. So Nabal has benefited very much from David's labors and his men's labors. So by going, sending this delegation to Nabal, it's not as though David's running a mafia-style protection racket trying to criminally extort money from this man. He's doing the culturally appropriate thing. He's asking for the culturally appropriate thing. David has given Nabal a gift. He's acted generously and honorably towards him. And now Nabal is under a well-understood obligation to reciprocate. He certainly can afford to do so. He's profited by the whole deal. He's profited handsomely. And it's a bit embarrassing, in fact, that David is the one who asked to ask. Really, Nabal should have thought ahead and invited David and his men, but... Perhaps he's forgotten, and so David sends these men to politely but firmly give him a little nudge to take care of his kinsman who has dealt so well with him. Nabal's response is surprising, to say the least. When he hears what these young men are asking him, he is enraged. He's enraged at David's nerve to make this request. Nabal is a self-made man, or so he imagines himself to be. And like so many self-made men, he has little spirit of gratitude for those who have helped him, or even common neighborliness and hospitality for those who are in need. David might well be a military hero. He might be the famous man who had brought down Goliath. He's the most famous member of Nabal's clan, but Nabal refuses to recognize him. Who is this David? Who is this son of Jesse? This guy is human garbage. As far as I'm concerned, and so are his men. 
They're landless rebel, rebels. They're troublemakers. I want nothing to do with them. Nabal, like so many rich men, is an authoritarian. He's a law and order person. In his mind, the wealthy and the powerful are always right. And the, the job of the working classes is to keep their heads down and know their place. There are lots of servants these days who are running away from their masters, he sneers, because in his mind, David is nothing more than a runaway slave who deserves to be captured and whipped by King Saul. Should I take my bread and my water and my meat that I've slaughtered for my shearers and give it to a band of outlaws who come from who knows where? My stuff. It's mine. My bread. My water. My meat. And nothing infuriates Nabal more than the threat of his stuff being taken away from him. He doesn't want to part with a single one of his possessions. And this man who is an arrogant man in the grip of greed and miserliness violates every single social and cultural convention of decency, of reciprocity, of hospitality, and of kinship. He refuses to fulfill his obligations, really, to David and his men. The ten young men in the delegation shut their lips tight, they spin on their heels, and they head back to headquarters to report every word of this conversation to David. And David must have been stunned to hear what Nabal had said. It wasn't so much that he was refusing to share, it's the contempt and the insults that are so shocking. And in an honor-shame culture, like ancient Israel, there's only one way to respond, to recover the loss of face that you've suffered, and that is with overwhelming violence. David is white with anger. Swords, he calls for. Swords. Company C, you stay with the baggage. Companies A and B, get your swords, saddle up. We're going to avenge this insult. And David is choking with rage. What a bloody waste of time. Guarding the flocks of this worthless ingrate. And for all our hard work, for all our sleepless nights, for all our crawling over the cliffs and the mountains, all we get from this guy are insults and contempt. God can kill me himself if I don't personally rip the guts out of this jackass and every last man in his operation. David is furious. And if any of you were reading along in the King James Version you realize that the King James translates the coarseness in David's expression that modern versions mask and make gentler because David doesn't actually say, I'm going to kill every last man. He says, according to the King James, I'm going to slaughter everyone who pisseth against the wall. This is rough, coarse speech, not written for children. 
And you have to wonder, what happened to the sweet psalmist of Israel? The man after God's own heart, who's so sensitive to the Holy Spirit. How on earth could this man, by the way, who just in chapter 24 had so nobly refrained from killing Saul in the cave, how is this man now spitting out curses and ready to butcher an entire household? Do you know what's possible to resist one temptation, to superbly resist one temptation and be completely wiped out by the next? David is passionate, he's impulsive, he has a keen sense of honor, he has a fervent desire for justice, and these are all wonderful qualities that served him very well in the cave. But now these very qualities become liabilities when this fool, Nabal, jabs a stick in David's eye. And Vlad was reminding me just this week how our very spiritual strengths are the things that are most likely to become our downfall. And such is very nearly the case with David. Warm-hearted people can easily become hot-headed. And in the moments of uncontrolled rage can commit a crime that they'll regret for a lifetime. And, you know, we all think that we're we're all quite nice, decent, even humble people until we're the victim of some unprovoked attack. Someone that you have done many nice things for, that you've sacrificed yourself for, And you don't expect it, but this cruel person somehow gets under your armor and wounds your ego terribly. It's a deeply personal attack. And then you find this horrible anger filling your heart, and you're ready to burn down this person's house with them inside it. And you get the sense in these chapters, this time in the wilderness, it's a time of trial from God, but it's also a time of temptation from the evil one. You get the feeling that the evil one is probing David from different directions, trying to bring about his downfall. Trying to get David to cause his own downfall, so that even if he reaches the throne, he'll be so compromised by guilt will be useless for God's purposes. And of all possible results, self-sabotage is the one Satan prefers the most. Not when someone else takes us out, when we take ourselves out. That is his ultimate goal. And David's greatest danger is not from Saul or Goliath or the Philistines or any other enemy, David's greatest danger is what lurks within his own heart. David has reacted so impulsively to this unexpected insult that he's forgotten who he is in God. He had Abiathar, the priest with him. He had the ephod that he could have used to consult with God. 
but he doesn't even think to reach for the ephod. His instinctive reaction is to reach for his sword and solve this problem by brute force. David is answering a fool according to his folly, and he's becoming just as foolish as Nabal. Well, while David's men are saddling up and ready to ride into battle, into a massacre, really, one of the young men runs to Abigail in the kitchens and breathlessly explains what had happened, how Nabal had screeched insults at David's men despite their helpfulness. And now the servant and all the servants are terrified at the disaster that is hanging over them because they know that culturally there is only one appropriate way for David to respond when he hears the news. And the servant appeals to Abigail and urges her to take some kind of action for as they all know, her husband is such a wicked worthless fellow that he'll listen to nobody. I mean, it is amazing that in this household, the servant is able to speak so rudely about her husband to Abigail. But there's no honoring this man. Some husbands you can kind of paper over and protect, but this man's stupidity and foolishness can no longer be hidden. And everyone just has to acknowledge this guy is a complete idiot who's going to get us all killed. And so Abigail wastes no time confronting her arrogant, unwilling husband. It's only going to enrage him. The only solution is to go behind his back, violate his intentions, and go deal with David herself. This Abigail is a woman of decisive action. She empties the pantry. She takes whatever food has already been prepared on the counter for the feast. She loads up the donkeys and she sends them ahead to David. She's going to be following close behind. Pausing, I suspect, only to change out of her work clothes and touch up her makeup for this important interview with David where she's going to need every ounce of feminine charm she can muster to save them all. The two of them have this dramatic meeting on the road winding through the ravine. David is spitting curses at the head of a bloodthirsty mob of 400 men. But he's taken aback by this lovely, elegant woman dismounting from her donkey and bowing low on her face in the road in front of them. You'll see in her speech, she uses these verbal and physical expressions of extreme Humility in order to disarm David, to make up for the contempt and insults that, she, that he's endured from her husband. You'll see that despite these expressions of humility, her words are actually quite forceful and assertive. And she carries David along with her. And her very uh, female weakness and vulnerability somehow overpower and overwhelm David just as she plans. This is, by the way, the longest speech by a woman in the Bible. The longest speech by a woman in the Bible complaining about her worthless husband who will not listen to her. And Abigail dramatically offers to take the blame. 
But she makes it quite clear, even in doing that, that the whole situation is really her stupid husband's fault. And normally, she explains, normally I'm around to kind of babysit him, to clean up his messes after him. Today, I just wasn't there. And now this whole disaster has fallen onto us. But then, my Lord, and she calls David my Lord 14 times in this speech. But then, my Lord, she says to David, my husband is a fool and a worthless man. Really, he's beneath your notice. Why would you waste your time and your energies trying to squash this little insect of a human being? Thanks to me, she says, the Lord has kept you from bloodshed and from avenging yourself with your own hands. Now, she's making quite a leap here because she's assuming that she's already won David over and that he's already back down. And David can't get a word edgewise in this lengthy speech of hers. But really, what can David do? It's one thing to smash her brute of a husband in the face, but it'd be quite unthinkable for him and his men to cut down this beautiful, intelligent, eloquent woman bowing down before them in the road. There's no way he can do it. And she knows this. She's disarming him with her words and her actions. But what could be flattery and manipulation then rise to this level of prophetic speech. And Abigail reveals herself her true quality and her true worth because she goes on to give David a divine vision of his future. She reminds him of God's long-term plans and promises for him, not just to put him on the throne, but to give him a sure house after him. And she has this beautiful pair of contrasting images where she describes David as being like one of those bundled up in the bundle of the living. And those who pursue him, his enemies, will be like a stone flung out of, out of, from, the, from the sling. And that first image is probably a shepherding image because uh, what we know from neighboring cultures is that shepherds would carry around with them a, lo- a little leather bag. And they would, in that bag, keep one small stone for each of the sheep in the flock. And if they lost a sheep... They would remove the stone and enable them to quickly tally up, making sure that they had the right count of the sheep. So here's Abigail using this homely shepherding image with which David, the shepherd boy, would have been quite familiar with and saying, David, you are like one of these pebbles in God's little leather sack, and he's not going to let you go. The wicked, on the other hand, are quite a different kind of stone like one of the stones that David flung out of his sling towards Goliath. But these wicked people are going to be slung out from God's sling into the void, into emptiness, far away from God's purposes. She's recalling David to his true identity in God, reminding him that he is so secure in God that these petty insults should not even register with him. Because David is not a self-made man like Nabal imagines himself to be. 
David is not a self-made man. David is a God-made man. And he should rise above this petty vengeance and think about his future in God. Let faith in the divine promises calm your rage, Abigail says. This sin, in fact, is below you. And this man is below you. You're destined for great things. Don't get distracted by this little, little man. In fact, why not act like the king you were called to be? With patience, with forbearance, with magnanimity, with a great heart. And one last thing, David. God's going to bring you to the throne. You don't want to be sitting on that throne with a burdened conscience, with a heavy heart, with bad dreams and blood-soaked hands. Don't do things now that will make you uneasy then. Well, David is completely won over by Abigail's speech. He'd gone into this speech thirsting for blood, but now his eyes are opened. He blesses God. He blesses her. He recognizes that she's been sent by God. God sent her to protect David from his own stupidity. It's the gift of providential restraints, where God steps into our lives sends a person perhaps to confront us and keep us from destroying ourselves. In the wilderness, David needs to learn patience and self-control. Those are hard lessons to learn. Bravery was much easier for David. But he needs to learn that there are few problems that are resolved by violence. Maybe no problems that are resolved by violence. And the true king, the true king after God's own heart, he doesn't reign by force. He reigns by wisdom. His human anger does not produce the righteousness that God requires. Well, as Abigail foresaw, God took care of Nabal for David. The man's hungover after a night of heavy eating and drinking. And there, his head aching with his hangover, Abigail tells him the news. And he seems to have had a stroke or some medical event. He's paralyzed or in a coma like a stone. Like a stone slung out by God. And ten days later, the Lord finishes him off. And Nabal is dead. Both Nabal and David act foolishly in this chapter. The difference between these two men is one listened to the wise woman and the other did not. Nabal was a foolish man, but he'd been blessed with a wife filled with prudence and discretion and good judgment. And had he been a man willing to listen to his wife and recognize the gift of God that that he was, his path would have ended quite differently. But Nabal was not a man to listen. He was convinced that he was always right and that a woman's job is to stay quiet and submit and not challenge him because no one can tell this man anything. And because Nabal refuses to listen, 
he brings about disaster on his own head. David is bent on folly also, but he's willing to listen to the wise woman. And in her words, her very clever, very prudential, very discreet words, he recognizes the voice of God, keeping David from harming himself and bringing something terrible on his own conscience. You know, in the Bible, wisdom is personified, especially in Proverbs, as a beautiful woman. And here Abigail is wisdom herself, the beautiful lady wisdom, speaking to anyone who is ready to listen. The path to wisdom involves the willingness to listen to others. And even fools can become wise if only they choose to listen and to recognize the voice of those God sends you to dissuade you from stupid choices. That may or may not be a beautiful woman who intercepts you on a donkey as you're headed through a ravine on your way to massacre some people. But more likely it will come in more ordinary ways especially through our wives. And we men, including myself, can be very slow to recognize the gift of wisdom in our wives. This woman that God has put right beside us, who knows us better than anyone else, who's ready to offer suggestions and insight, and so often we bring disaster on our own heads because we are unwilling to listen. We are unwilling even to ask for help. And this is what destroys Nabal. You know, you might wonder, why is this story even included in 1 Samuel? Because it's in between, right in between two stories of David sparing Saul. And then we have this weird episode, this kind of side episode. You think, surely the director could cut this out and shorten this book a little bit. But there's actually a link, I think, the narrator is making between Saul and Nabal. Both are powerful men. Men who fail to recognize David's true worth, despite all the benefit that he brings them. And they return evil for good. And as a result, they find themselves alienated from their own families and households. And in the end... Destroyed. And this episode with Nabal and Nabal's end is a sign to David that just as he's dealt with this fool Nabal for David, so God will deal with this fool Saul. You know, as we wrap up, reminded that in our relationship with our Creator, We're all a bit like Nabal, aren't we? We imagine ourselves to be self-made men and women, but we're rude ingrates headed for destruction. The Christ arrives, the anointed king of God, but humanity fails to recognize him. And for his goodness and kindness, they spit on his face. They insult him, they shame him, They strip him naked, and they crucify him. 
But Jesus is not coming on a mission of vengeance. Do not come to condemn the world, but to save the world. And instead of acting with rage at his lost honor, he silently bears the spitting and the insults and the shame to save us from the consequences of our foolish, destructive choices. And the cross of Christ is a lasting sign that God has entered into this world not to inflict violence, but to suffer it for us. And Jesus does that out of obedience to his Father and out of love for the world. And now God invites us to his feast. He's no stingy rancher, unwilling to share. God is a God of generosity, of hospitality, a God who recognizes his own kin. And Jesus has made, has made peace by the blood of the cross that we're welcomed to come to the table of God. This podcast was from Tbilisi International Christian Fellowship. Learn more about us online at ticf-georgia.org. Thanks for listening.